This is a reading from the book of John, chapter 11. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus, telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe you sent me. 
Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. This reading is the word of the Lord. So that we say, amen. Matt, thank you so much for that. So this morning, this is going to be our text. If you want to flip, if you're not already there, you might want to flip in your Bible to June, June, John chapter 11. It is June, uh, but turn to John 11. Um, and the topic this morning is going to be suffering and evil. Um, I think if you're human, you've wrestled with this. We've all suffered. We've all experienced evil. I think we all ask questions as to why explanations of it. Um, if you haven't, I'm just not, I don't know. To me, you can't be human and, and not ask questions. Um, when I was trying to find a picture for that, uh, and I typed in suffering and evil, this was one of the top ones that appeared on Google. I thought only Kansas people would understand this one, so I just had to throw that in. But, you know, when we're, before I jump on the subject, when we talk about suffering and evil, I think a lot of people, the way they approach it is um, a way that's not helpful, and I think they approach it as a problem to be solved, um, as if it's like getting to, to Mars, that if we just have enough logic and if we do enough problem solving that we'll have very clean, cut, clear answers and we'll know everything we need to know and we'll never have questions about that again. Um, this is a mystery and you cannot, it, it is not a problem to be solved. And so what I just want to throw out to you in the future and even now is if, if you if you're, again, if you're human, you're going to wrestle with this stuff. Things are going to happen in your life, and you're going to have questions. Is Instead of seeing it as a problem to be solved, to look at it as a mystery um, to be explored. And I think by allowing it to be a mystery, that what I'm confessing is, is that in this life, that I can't know all the answers to things, and that there are going to be a lot of things in this life that are going to remain mysterious to me. Um, I'm allowing for that mystery to be there. And I think suffering and evil very much falls under that. That doesn't mean we can't try to search it out or to understand it to some degree, but rather than looking for easy, simple, neat, clear-cut answers, I think when we're dealing with suffering and evil as a mystery, what we're doing is we're looking for clues. Like a detective, there's a crime, they have no idea who did it, they may never solve who did it, but they can still look for clues, and the clues may point them in a general direction, though it may never be solved. So to me, that's my challenge for me personally and for you is anytime this comes up to, uh, to look at it as a, as a mystery, to not be afraid to explore it, but just to know we're not going to solve this. I'm not going to solve it in a sermon. Um, I don't even have it totally solved in my own mind, totally. Um, but mysteries take like wisdom, prayer, looking for insight, some logic, but trying to see into things deeply. Um, I was going to tell you, I'm not going to, about um, the main views. There's four main views about suffering and evil. Um, I'm going to skip that for right now, and I just want to, I find, I will say this, the, it, I'm not going to say very much about them, but materialism has a view of suffering and evil, pantheism, which is Buddhism and Hinduism, the other theistic religions, Islam and Judaism, all have answers to this problem of evil that I think are simplistic, and give too clear-cut an answer that's not satisfying. Can I just give you one example? So in pantheism, it's all karma. And so if something bad happens to you in all pantheistic religions, it is because you did something, either in this life or the previous life, and you are getting paid back for what you did. Every, everything, 
in your life, all forms of suffering, it's your fault. And I think that's a simplistic answer. I think the Bible and Jesus give a much better answer. So that's what I want to jump in today in John 11. Um, there is a note sheet. Uh, I created one because if I thought this was important enough to have one if you're kind of a note taker person. Because this is, if you were to ask me if I could, if God said you just get one sermon to hit this topic. And though it's only scratching the surface, this is what I would do. This is the text that I would go to. Because it's very Jesus focused and I think that's what we need to keep all right, so we're going to talk about seven truths about evil and suffering that I get out of this story in John, in John chapter 11. So let's, let's uh, jump into it. The story, by the way, takes place in Bethany, which is very close to Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, if you've been up on the Mount of Olives where you can see the temple so close, I mean, you can't imagine how close the temple looks. And to know that if you just turn the other way, the Bethany is really not that far um, the other way. So that's, that's where it happens. And I really want to try to approach this story. I think it's so easy. We read it and we know the ending. We just heard it. I think if you follow Jesus, you've heard this story before. So we all know the ending. And I, to try as much as possible to come at it like imagining from their point of view, because they didn't know what was going to end up happening in the end. And so just, I don't know, we're going to give it a shot. Here's the first thing I learned from this. The first thing I learned, um, that's a Google view of that, is that number one, that God and Jesus God is not ignorant of our suffering. The God is not ignorant of our suffering. I mean, they come to report it to Jesus. In verse 4, it says, when he heard this, he said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Yeah, when he says it's not going to end in death, what do you think? Everybody who hears him, what are they thinking is going to happen? They think what's going to happen? That he's going to heal him, right? That's what they think is going to happen. But So he knows. Verse 11, um, after this, he said, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus, he has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there and wake him up. They misunderstood him. They thought he was talking about, oh, he just he's, uh, he's having a really good sleep right now, and the fever's going away. He'll be okay. That that's not what he's saying, that he actually is dead. So Jesus has this very intimate understanding to a very intimate detail of what's going on. He is totally aware of everything that's happening to him. Nothing is surprising to him about this. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. He knows everything beginning to end. So he is not ignorant of all of this. The Psalms talk about how God counts our every tear. So Jesus knows. He knows. He's aware. And we're going to see in a minute that he cares. So the second thing I learned is, is not only is, is Jesus not ignorant of our suffering, but I also learned this from this story, that Jesus doesn't go about taking care of evil and suffering in the time or the way that I think he should. Maybe not you, I don't know, but he doesn't take care of things in the way and the time that we think he should. Um, I mean, if you look at verse 5, it says that Jesus loved it sounds so contradictory, right? He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, because he loved them, he stayed two more days. I mean, that makes zero sense. If I'm there watching this event, I'm like, why are you staying? It, 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 it's like your timing and your way of doing this, just it's, it's crazy to me. And then verse 11, it says, after he said this, he went on to tell him, our friend has finally fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And then when he arrives in verse 20, Martha's like, she goes out to meet him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Mary comes out right after that, says the exact same thing. If you had been here, he had, would not have died. And then verse 37, there are people there, some of them who say, could not, I mean, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, could he not have kept this man from dying? So he has met nobody's expectations in this, nobody. 
He has not done a single thing in the way or in the timing that they would have wanted him to do it. Nothing fit their expectation. They wanted him to come and to heal him right now in the way that they thought. But as we're going to see, Jesus had other things in mind. And when I look at their reaction, I mean, nothing new. I, I don't know about you, but this sure is like me. Um, when I find myself in suffering and difficulty, I want it fixed now and in the way that I want it fixed, right? Lord, if you could just do these three things to get this thing out of my life, and if you could do it right now, that would be great. And rarely does God fix the thing in the way or the timing that I think. Um, and I want it now, and I want it my way because me, being very limited, self-centered, I'm fallible, short-sighted, a creature who does not know the beginning of the ending, I know best, right? I know best and not him, and so I want it done in my way. I want to talk for just a minute about expectations because this one fits the idea of expectation. And I think a lot of times with suffering, the reason we suffer even more internally is because Jesus and God don't meet our expectations. I talked about this um, in January when we talked about John the Baptist, but I want to hit it again because so many relational problems between people, misunderstandings and conflict happen because of unmet expectations. And a lot of people don't know how significant this is, I think not only in life, but in my relationship with God. I mean, the fact that many of our expectations that we have of people, that they're unrealistic, that's important, that many of them are assumed and unspoken, that usually when I expect something of somebody or of God, I never tell them that. I have it, but they don't even know. That many of them are even unconscious, that I might even not even know I have an expectation till I'm disappointed, and once I hit that level of disappointment, then I'm like, you know what? I was kind of expecting something, and I didn't get it. And then the truth that many of our expectations are totally unagreed upon. And, and that's why just in relationships in general, the rule of thumb is an expectation is only valid when it's conscious, spoken, it's considered realistic by both parties, and it's mutually agreed upon by both parties. If you want to live life well with people, this is an, an important um, concept. And that's why one of the most important relational skills you can ever develop is to clarify expectations with people. And I just wonder in the midst of suffering how many of our expectations of God on how he's going to deal with something in my life, in the timing and in the way, how often I have an expectation upon him that he would say, I've not agreed to that. That's not my timing and that's not my way. That's what you want, but I've, I've not agreed to that. So to me, that's really helpful. It's helpful for me to learn to, to know and curtail my own expectation because God rarely does things in the way or the time that I think. But I see an, another important truth, number three in this story. And that is that Jesus is grieved by evil and suffering. It says in verse 35 that he wept. Um, it talks about he was doing this in response to the weeping going on around him by Martha and Mary and the others. The word used for their weeping is the word that you would use for weeping at a funeral. I mean, very deep wailing, very deep heartfelt crying of tears from a loss. In their mind, they would not see him again in this life. They knew they would see him at the future resurrection, but they would not see him. And so they're grieving very deeply. The word used for Jesus isn't that same word. It's just a word for that he shed tears. So he did cry, but it wasn't the same kind of crying. And the reason is, is because he knows what's going to, he knows that in just a few minutes, Lazarus is going to be alive. So he's not grieving the same way they are, but he is weeping. And the question is, is what's he crying about? And... Some commentators think there's probably two things going on. The part of it is, is he is, he's saddened by the fact that he just told Martha, I'm the resurrection of life. 
And she says, well, I believe that you're the Messiah and the Son of God. But she still is grieving, which means she doesn't really believe when he said that she's still thinking he can't act and fix this situation. So there's probably some of that, just the pain of not having been believed in. But because of what I'm going to get to with my next point and a little bit later um, that happens with him, that the, probably the main thing that was going on is he was just simply sad at their grief and sadness, and he was broken internally. Uh, the way sin had wreaked havoc on the whole, his whole of creation, that everything he created full of his shalom is broken by sin, and there's sin and suffering and death and dying, and there's sadness and sorrow and loss, and that his heart is broken by that. And so what I see in Jesus is not only he is totally aware of what's going on, so he's not ignorant, he's not going to fix it the way I think or expect, the timing or the way, but I also see in this story that Jesus is grieved with me, that he cries with me in my pain. That's significant. The fourth truth takes it even a step further, and I think even more important, and that is, is that the Jesus is angered or God is angered by evil and suffering. It says it twice, um, Matt you know, you read the, the NLT, and I'm actually glad you did. Somebody said something about it between services. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It uses the same word in verse 38. We're going to come back to that one in a minute. Um, this deeply moved in spirit and trouble, if, if you're reading that in the NIV following him, you're like, well, wait, his said angry. Did it even say deeply angry? I don't remember. He can take a quick look at that. Um, but it uses the word anger. Um, this word in Greek, it's very strong. It's a very visceral kind of gut level word. It is used of when somebody is deeply angry, is very angry when they are outraged in their spirit. What did it? Deep anger. So pretty, that's a pretty good translation. It's a very, it's an outrage in the spirit that deeply moved and troubled is way too weak. Um, the word actually means to be so agitated internally with anger that it affects me physically, that there's a physical and an emotional agitation. The word was frequently used of, of horses who like reared up in anger and snorted, okay? So it's, it's, it's not just an emotional reaction, something that, that is a gut level that comes into your body. There are, the a lot of scholars think there's an implication that with this that there was like, that maybe he shook with anger, that he, there was a sound like a snort, like he grunted or he groaned. Um, have you ever been so angry at something, you saw something evil or something bad happening to somebody you cared about, and it troubled you so much? There, this happened to me one time. Somebody I really cared about, something really bad had come in their life, and as I was thinking and praying about it, I just went, you know, I went, I, I balled at my fist, and I went, like that. That's this kind of anger, okay, because I was angry at what was happening to them, the situation. So God is angry. He's not only grieved by the havoc that sin has wreaked on his creation and on us and the people around us. He's not just grieved and saddened by it. He's actually angry that that's what's become of the world that he created. He's, being, he's angry about it. So Jesus approaches this tomb with tears in his eyes, outrage in his heart over the effects of sin on the people that he loves. I think both are profoundly important. And because of that, we have truth number five. Because of his grief and his anger over things, he acts, he is acting to overcome evil and suffering. Verse 39, take away the stone, he said. But Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead men, dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. So she's not believing he's really gonna do anything, right? So he says, Take the stone away. And she goes, He's been dead four days and it stinks. It's gonna stink. This four days is really, really significant. 
in the Jewish culture at that time, okay, this is not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say this, but it was a common belief in the Jewish culture that when a person died, their soul hovered over their body for three days. That if somehow their body could get revived, the soul could re-enter. But on the fourth day, they became so decayed that by the fourth day came that the soul would leave at that time. A lot of people around the world believe this. We had a Chinese student here who died. And after he died, they would get in his, the students would get in his apartment for several days. I don't remember how many because they believed his soul hovered around for a few days. This is a really common belief. So Jesus is waiting till the fourth day. Because Jesus is waiting till he's not just dead, he's dead dead. Does that make sense? He's waiting that he's so dead, they know he's dead. So she says, he's been in there four days. Verse 40, so Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, or the old King James when I first became a believer in my, that home church, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face, and Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus not only knows, not only cares, not only is angry about sin and su- about suffering and evil, but he acts. He raises him from the dead. And remember, he acts in a way they never expected um, because does, he rarely acts in the way that I expect. This was something they didn't expect at all. And I think the reason he acts in di- ways differently in the timing than I expect is because he has, as I thought about this, I initially had written down, he has bigger fish to fry, and I'm not sure if that's the best way to say it, but he has other fish to fry. Um, I am significant. He promises to cause all things to work for good to those who love him, Romans 8, 28. But he's got a lot bigger things in his mind than just Garen in my life, right? When I'm suffering, guess, I'm only thinking about one person. Who do you think I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about me. He's got a lot of other things that he's doing. He's at work in situations a lot bigger than just my own life. He's bringing glory to, to himself through other things. He's trying to bring other people to himself through the events that are happening around me. And I don't see those things. And part, we, what we learn from the story is some of the larger things that were going on is Jesus was doing something to bring glory to the Father, that he was also doing this to build his followers' faith. Just before everything's going to turn really south, right, in a few days, it's going to get really bad, and he's trying to build their faith even more. We're also told that he was revealing himself in a powerful way. He was showing something of his true identity that he had never spoken to before in a way that, they, that made him more famous in their eyes and drew them to him. And it's that thing in uh, Martha, when she comes out and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. And he says, Lazarus will be raised again. And she says, I know that on the last day at the resurrection of the dead, he will rise. I know that. I want to show you a diagram of what in her mind she was thinking. You know, we've, I've shown you this a lot, the biblical drama, the, from creation, the age that was, the, sh- the world perfect with shalom, to the age that is that's corrupt and broken and full of suffering. And then they were looking forward to the age that was to come, the messianic age, when the Messiah would come back victoriously as king, that he would, at that time, he would judge all the nations, that they would be sent away from him forever into hell, that he would raise the righteous up, and they would, who would be the Jews in their mind, and they would live forever with him on new creation, enjoying their own fig tree, 
like we talked, was that last week, the fig tree? These things go so fast. Having their own fig tree and their own vine, the prophet said. In her mind, he, when he says he will rise again, she's thinking at the end of the age. That's what's going on in her mind. She didn't know two things. She didn't know, number one, that he was coming at that time as the suffering servant Messiah. He wouldn't come as king till later on, that there would be the gap between the two. She didn't understand that. But the other thing she didn't really understand is they really believed that God would be the one to raise the dead at that last day, that when Messiah came, that God would raise the dead. And so Jesus wants to correct her because she, he wants to reveal something about himself that's so profound and important. And here's what he says. It's not just God that's going to raise them on the last day when all people are resurrected. He's like, Martha, I want you to understand. Look me in the eye. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the one who is the source of life. I'm the one who raises the dead. And I'm not just going to do it on the last day. If you'll watch and pay attention, I'm going to do it today because I'm the resurrection and the life. There was so much more going on that he wanted them to understand. Um, I mean, and just think, <laughs> I, I, you've probably heard this before, but if you just think from Lazarus' perspective, um, you know, Lazarus could have had a pretty cool story. Hey, I got a cold one day, kind of turned into pneumonia, got a high fever on the bed, things got a little sketchy. Uh, family sent for Jesus, he showed up in an hour, and he laid hands on me and he healed me. I mean, he could have told that story, right? Did, did, did anybody have any idea that the story Lazarus was going to be telling was, uh, I was dead. I mean, I was dead, dead, and Jesus rose from the dead. Is that not a much better, beautiful story that brings God, glory to Jesus and to the Father? Is that not a more amazing thing that Jesus was up to than they could even have imagined? Um, so I love this story. So he acts. Jesus does act. He is acting to overcome evil. And I really love these last two. Because to me, the last two are the things that are most distinctly and uniquely Christian. They're the things that separate Jesus, especially apart from any other religion, any other religious leader, any other philosophy. And it's this truth number six, that God has entered into, Jesus has entered into our suffering, and he's taken evil upon himself. He has entered into our suffering. I mean, we see it already in verse 35. He's weeping, right? So he's feeling it. But look at verse 45. I had Matt stop at 44. Look at verse 45. Because this to me is equally important. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, and they saw what, they'd seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them, the tattletales, they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he spoke up. You guys know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Skip down to verse 53 then. So from that day, they plotted to take Jesus' life. They had talked about killing him before, but this was the day, because of this Lazarus event, they started plotting to kill him. They started making very specific plans of how they would kill him. And I want you to, I want you to here's what I want you to realize. Look, look at, uh, let me pull up this Bethany thing again. Um, 
unless you're there on the ground, I don't think you realize how close Bethany is to the temple. If this, if 12th Avenue Baptist Church were Bethany, the temple would be down at Exchange Street. Everybody knows Exchange if you went down 12th Avenue. The Mount of Olives would be about where Emporia State University is. If I were to do this diagram kind of with this map, that's really close. That's just a, what, uh, I don't know. I walk kind of fast, 30-minute walk, I'm not sure. Do you realize when Jesus does this miracle of the raising of this dead man, he is doing it in the backyard of the temple and of the religious leaders. It's just up over the hill from where the center of all that religion is. And I want you to know, him doing this miracle, that this place, at this time in Bethany, that he knew that he was stirring up a hornet's nest, that he was going to bring out the anger of the religious leaders against him by that miracle, and that that would be the very big, I mean, they've already been plotting, but that would be the thing that would usher him to his death. He knew that, and that was very intentional. Um, And here is why, to me, that's so important. Because in this miracle, I see him acting in a way that he knows it's going to end in his death. And that tells me that Jesus is willing to step into my suffering and to take evil upon himself, which is, to me, so profound. I want to talk for a minute about his death. I once talked to somebody who had suffered profoundly for many, many years. And here's what they said about Jesus. They said, forgive me. Not trying to be rude, but Jesus only suffered for three hours. And I understand the sentiment. What he was saying is Jesus' suffering was nothing compared to mine. And I just want to tell you today that Jesus' suffering on the cross, I think, was more profound than anything any of us has ever suffered. I think than all of us put together. That in his incarnation, he came into a world of brokenness and suffering. I mean, he lost his father. But he was fully entering into the human condition. And from that garden of Gethsemane to the tomb, he profoundly experienced suffering in a way I think no human ever has. We talked about this a little bit um, with the Gethsemane. But think about it physically. He is put to death on a cross, the most cruel form of execution ever created, being crucified on a cross publicly. Our word in English, excruciating pain, comes from ex, from that cruciate part is the crux or the cross. The word excruciating is a way of describing the pain of the cross. So, I mean, he's beaten multiple times. He's scourged. He's nailed on a cross. He's experiencing pain and suffering, not just physically, but socially, like in human, in a human level, on an individual level, and like on an institutional kind of level. I mean, imagine in the next few days, he's going to be betrayed by one of his core people. His closest companions are going to run away from him and leave him and abandon him. One of his very dearest friends is going to deny that he, doesn't, that he even knows him. I mean, did you notice in Luke, when we read in Luke, that it says when Peter denied him, that Jesus immediately, like they locked eyes, right? Jesus felt so powerfully. Can you imagine the emotion of that betrayal and him hearing those words? Um, so just all that, but also just think of the societal evil coming against him. This, this whole religion, the whole Jewish religion is bent on his destruction, Everything about them, this whole thing that runs their country is wanting to get rid of this guy. And then they bring on the Roman government um, to bear upon that. And they act with them in concert uh, to end this man's life. So everything, like, everything hum, all human evil is coming down on him. And emotionally, we talked about that with Gethsemane. I'm not going to go into all the details, but if you remember in Gethsemane, the crushing, right? Three times he's crushed. He was agonizing internally. The emotional despair was so profound that he, he bled drops of tears, of tears of blood, which hardly anybody ever does. It's so rare. I mean, he was, he was emotionally agonizing. And we talked, we talk, you've heard all this before. 
Um, but to me, the far worse suffering is that spiritual suffering. The wall on the cross, he experienced the greatest sense of alienation in human history. The son who from eternity past had enjoyed a deep, intimate, uninterrupted relationship with the father that none of us have ever experienced with anybody, ever. Uninterrupted. He had that stripped, totally stripped from him. And for the first time, he experienced estrangement from his father. For the first time. I mean, think about it. I mean, I think I talked about this with the Gethsemane. You know, nobody likes physical pain, and all of us have had that. But there is, physical pain is nothing compared to relational pain, right? You know, you, whatever, I'll endure physical pain, but I do not want to lose somebody that I'm close to who abandons me, who, who leaves me, and who hates me, right? That is the worst pain you can experience, is that, that breaking of relationship. And that's what he experiences on the cross when the Father... When he's bearing the spiritual alienation of every human and the father turns his back on Jesus and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to know Jesus, I think, was the only human in history. Totally alone. Totally alone. He experienced abandonment, darkness, and cosmic proportions. Um, I think I said when I did preached on Gethsemane of his pain there, that sometimes we'll say, I feel God forsaken, but none of us has ever been God forsaken. But Jesus was God forsaken, the only human in history. And that's why Christian Wiseman says in that moment, he felt human destitution to its absolute degree. I want you to know he entered into the human condition and he shared our suffering on a much greater scale than any of us or all of us together will ever experience. The powers, the spiritual powers of darkness were hell-bent on destroying him. Everything in their power was focused on him and getting rid of him. I don't think we'll ever understand how much he suffered. Jesus' hell was infinitely greater than all of ours put together. And he voluntarily chose that. Nobody chooses suffering, right? If you said to me, hey, Garen, how about tomorrow? How would you like to break an arm? Or how would you like to, uh, I don't know, just... How would you like to suffer? How would you like to, to lose somebody significant? I would not, I'd say no. I would do anything in my power to avoid it. And he chose it. He chose to enter into a, our suffering. And that's why Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 says, Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity. For this reason, he had to become made like us in every way. He had to in order that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I want to tell you, there is no other religion, there is no other philosophy, there is no, no religion that has a God like that that will enter into our suffering. None of them have that. To me, that's why I, if I were to do one thing on suffering, it's got to be Jesus to me. Um, because Jesus, to me, he's the final answer. I don't understand it. It's still a mystery. I don't get so much stuff. But what I can tell you is, is that he understands. He's not going to fix it the way I think he is and the timing it is. But he is grieved by it. He is angered by it. And he, actu he acts on it. And he actually has entered into my suffering with me. That, to me, that's so profound. Still a mystery, but that's so important to me. And here's the final truth I want to show you. 
that Jesus and goodness will triumph over evil in the end. Um, in verse 43, he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Jesus was victorious over death and over even, I mean, sin and Satan, which wanted to keep him there, all of that. He was victorious on that day over that, that Jesus won that battle. But then the greater battle happened just a week later when Jesus is crucified and he's put to death and he raises three days later. And we just read in John 12 that the whole reason for that is the one who rules the world is now going to get put down. He says that guy is getting put down. He defeated in some way that I don't, I don't totally understand because we still see junk going on. But in some sense, he defeated Satan and all of evil and all of sin. And he defeated death when he rose from the dead. And he stands as Lord. And he will come one day, right, again as the king. And at that time, he will raise the dead, he will bring judgment, and he will create a new heaven and earth, and will live forever and ever with him with no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, and he will finally fully be triumphant over evil and suffering. Yeah. That is the Jesus that we serve, and there's so much mystery, I don't understand, but I know him. I know him. Man, those two, those last two to me are so powerful. God has entered into our suffering and he's taken evil on himself. He suffered for us and yet, in the end, Jesus will triumph over evil. He will triumph over evil. And I want you to see his heart on how, how bent Jesus is on becoming victorious over evil. We saw in verse, I think it was 35, that he became angry, like he like shook. He was so angry and indignant. It's said one more time in verse 38. Here's what it says in verse 38. Jesus once more, okay, this is in IV, but indignant. He like shook and he snorted, he groaned, and he came to the tomb. And it was when he came to the tomb that he says, I want you to remove that stone. And here's what B.B. Warfield, he's a great biblical scholar from the, over 100 years ago. Here's what he says about this scene of Jesus the second time just getting angry and shaking. And he steps toward that tomb and he says, take the rock off. He says, the distress of Mary and her companions, it enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, and its violent tyranny, to quote John Calvin. In Mary's grief, he sees and he feels the misery of the whole human race, and he burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind him, the one who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion who is prepared for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes a decisive instance of Jesus' conquest of death and hell in flaming wrath against the foe. Does he care? You bet he cares. He cares so much that he's enraged by it, and he steps up as our victorious conqueror, as our leader, as our king in anger, and he says, move the stone. Lazarus, come out. And he does. That's the Jesus that we serve, and he, to me, is the one I go to when I'm struggling with suffering. 
Can we hear it for Jesus again? Can we like hear it for Jesus? So, I see seven truths. He's not ignorant of my suffering. He is not going to fix it in the way or time that I think. He grieves over it. He's angered by it. He acts. I don't always see how, but he is acting in some way. He took our sin, our suffering and evil upon himself in a personal way. And the seventh was, one day he will be totally triumphant over evil and suffering. That's, that's what the Bible says about it. And that's where I stand. Uh, would you stand? I want you to pray a prayer, and then we're going to end with worship. This is a prayer I, I wrote, and then I added something from John Wesley's prayer to this. Um, but can you just join me with this? It's on the sheet, but pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are fully aware of my suffering and that you care about my suffering. I don't always see it, but I know that you are acting to overcome evil and suffering in this world and that you're even now acting in my own life in ways I cannot see nor understand. I know that you will take care of me and I trust you in that, even if it may not be in the way or the time that I think you should. I praise you for leaving the comforts of home to enter into this world of suffering so you could defeat sin, Satan, and evil on the cross and through your resurrection. I know that you've experienced evil and suffering personally and that you understand. I come to you now in my time of need, seeking your grace and your strength to patiently endure so that in all of it, you may be made famous. Lord, make me what you will. I'm no longer my own, but yours. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Say, amen. So we're going to end with a, a song of worship. I, if you feel, if, if you're like in the midst of suffering and you're like, I just need to respond, I don't know, in some way. Up here is that prayer with the assigned and date. And if you're needing to be like, you know what, I've kind of, my perspective's gotten lost, and I love Jesus, and I'm, I love the things I see in this story, and you just want to come up and be like, I want to, I want to put my trust in him, lay claim to who he is, and, and if, if it would be helpful for you to come up to pray, to lay that suffering down, to sign this and date it, to keep this with you, if that's helpful for you, then come do that. If not, that's fine, but would you, um, you can do that while we worship or stay seated, whichever you feel led. Just reflecting on that, I love how it says that Jesus wept. Even though he knew what was going to happen, he still wept with them. And God tells us to weep with those who weep. He doesn't tell us to pat him on the back and say, it's fine, don't cry. And I think the purpose in that is that he knows the brokenness of this world. He acknowledges that. That's why he sent Jesus. And when we do that, either sitting with someone or pouring out our heart to him and our pain and suffering, it's acknowledging our need for him. So let's do that this morning with this next song.
Those who, because there's always suffering people in our midst, we pray for them. Lord, we know you're there and you're present. We just ask that they, they would feel that. You are one who comes with grace and strength. Would you provide it in profound ways that we can't even understand? Um, so we just give them all to your hands. We're all going to go through suffering. Lord, help us in that to turn to you and to remember you and to put our eyes upon you. Thank you for the reality of who you are. Thank you for the things we learn from this story, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, 12th, you are this week, you're sent to be trusting people in Jesus and who he is and in the midst of the difficulties of life. So 12th, you are sent.